0: Welcome to the journey, a chronological study which goes through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. So, Luke chapter uh, twelve, verse thirteen. Someone in the crowd said to him, uh, "You know, this is this this was originally before I go on. Again, we split this up just because in the interest of time last week. Um, and I don't. And and the only shame in doing that, but this is true a lot of the time. Is there's this there's this abrupt, abrupt shift that happens." And I think Jesus is actually responding to that. So just to remind you, the very last thing that happened was that he said, you're going to be persecuted. And when you're persecuted, the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. He's talking in these big, big terms, right, about big mission and, and big kingdom kind of issues. And then and then you have this. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And I think Luke is pointing out, because we see it in Jesus' response, that this is, this is such a shift from sort of, it, it seems very small all of a sudden. There's no doubt that this person is serious about the, the wanting them to divide the inheritance. There's no doubt that to them it's a big deal. But I think Luke shows us, and Jesus' response reminds us, that this is suddenly very small, that this is not what Jesus is dealing with right now. He's not here to be just a counselor or or a Solomon kind of providing these mediations. He's not here to kind of improve these things you know uh, in the temporary ground he's moving towards the finality of his mission here on earth and he's in that mode and he's in that mode with people he's talking about things like the holy spirit coming and persecution coming so i think he's a little bit sort of taken aback that this person hasn't really been listening to him because he's been thinking about his inheritance now as i read it see if it doesn't flow like that to you someone in the crowd said to him teacher tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? It's like, that's that's not my job. I'm not here for that. Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. So he's like, look, I'm not here to arbitrate between you guys. And in fact, I want to remind you, as important as that inheritance may be practically to you or feels to you, I want to remind you that that's not what life is about. We're talking about really big things here. You want to ask me questions? I'm I'm I've, I've declared myself by this point pretty much the god of the universe. Definitely declared myself as the messiah. You might want to take advantage of who you're talking to to ask bigger questions than than to solve this civil case. And I think that's what he's saying. You know, life is not about the abundance of your possessions. You're really focused on that. That's where you are. Uh, Be careful about that. And then from there, Jesus begins to then talk about this contrast between life is an abundance of possessions or life is something else. And he goes further than that. And so the rest rest of the passage for a little bit is that he's going to be talking to them about what is your focus? What is your devotion? What's your priority? Is it things that are here or is it things eternal? Because it's going to make a difference. So that's kind of how he we transitioned from where we were to this, weird, to this question about dividing my inheritance to now Jesus saying, look, let me, let's talk about what really matters. Let's talk about the biggest things. And he says, and he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life, eat, drink, take life easy, rather, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it is. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. So I'm interested in any thoughts you guys have before I I, kind of comment on the thoughts that I had from this. Anybody have any thoughts just from this this parable and Jesus telling it uh, at this moment?
1: Well, it's clear that the the guy that asked him the question isn't interested in anything other than his material possessions. Yeah. He's missed the point of what Jesus has been talking about.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And it is one of those points where it's helpful to remember that Jesus knows the heart of the people he speaks to. And he shows that a lot.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We talked before about how he always answers the question that is really there, even when it's not the one that was asked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this is another one of those moments where you're right. He's kind of saying to the guy, you're focused on the wrong things. That's good. That's good. Any other thoughts from this?
2: Well, it I don't know. It kind of struck me a little bit too because like some of them were expecting him to come and like take his kingdom in there. And that would be kind of the thing that you would possibly expect kings to do. I mean, that's what like, well, at least like Absalom did and Solomon did and I think maybe David did and so yeah it just seems kind of part of like taking like the physical things and just making it like so much bigger and like eternal to them
0: yeah that makes sense too maybe maybe they think it makes the most sense to ask the messiah about this because right the king's job is is prosperity and justice on some level so maybe maybe so yeah anybody else have any thoughts anything that you kind of don't like about this parable or or that you're not sure what it you know what the implications are for you
1: well this isn't a not like but just looking at the last verse um he points again to
0: uh
1: people not being rich and generous towards god
0: yeah i think it's a good point oh go ahead no please finish
1: yeah, no, just you know, that we've we've heard so many of the 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 Jews, the Pharisees, who or whoever who are chintzy with their yep. worship to God, worship of God, comparing the the poor lady to the rich man and how much she's able to give versus what he gives. And this yep. guy isn't even interested in dividing it three ways: him, his brother, and God. It's just him and his brother. <laughs>
0: that's true that's true <laughs> and there's no mention about th- that's an interesting point because this guy has a surplus crop and on one level you're like well it, i mean is he just supposed to let it rot well, of course you need to build bigger barns to put your surplus crop in but part of the answer is oh maybe you say well wow, god really blessed me this year with a surplus crop surplus meaning more than i need maybe i could return some of this to god or according to the levitical law Maybe I could return some of this to the poor people who are walking through my fields looking for food. Um, so I think you make a good point that there is actually a third option there that he doesn't think about. I also really like that last line because it, it does clarify, again this is not a verse about it's wrong to store up things. It's a verse about where's your priority and where's your heart? Because he doesn't say this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, period. He doesn't say that. He says, this is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. There is a there is a contrast here. There is a, there is a concept here of where is your priority? Where is your heart? What are you investing in? This guy is investing everything in tomorrow, having more food, and it turns out tomorrow he dies. And I think when God says, this is how it will be, it doesn't mean that everybody who invests in the wrong thing will die tomorrow but it means that everybody who invests in the wrong thing will die at some point. And the question is, where will their investment be then? What will be left then whenever that happens? And, and so he's saying, if you're rich toward God, guess what? That investment is forever. That won't go away when you die. But these things that you, you've set your heart on these things that are what are most important to you think about it. And so, yeah, we have this guy worried about his inheritance and Jesus is like, this is this is a monumental moment in the life of Israel. The Messiah has come, and you're worried about your inheritance. Again, where is your heart set? Where is your focus? Where's your priority? What is the thing that is is resonating most of you? And one of the messages again, I don't think it's a message about punishment. It does. It's interesting if you read this carefully, and it is a parable, so I don't even know. You know, there's not a there's not necessarily like a a, a real story behind this, but but it is interesting. It doesn't say here that God said i'm 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 taking your life well I guess it does it says that very much your life will be from you my only point is he could say that even if he just knows that this is the guy, to the die it was going to happen whether the guy stored up or not I don't think the point is you're being punished for storing up the point is you're you 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 invested in the wrong things and now you don't have them because you counted on the thing you couldn't count on which was your life going longer than it should have. Um, Meredith, I saw you raise your hand earlier. What what thought did you have in there?
2: But It used to really bother me. And so I like kind of like what you brought up with the and, is gen- and isn't generous towards God. And that's not just about like, because Thank- I, mean, I think it's good and responsible for us to like save and be able to, you know, like take care of ourselves and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, I think it's one of those things where in another context, scripture would certainly look at somebody and say, the the fool doesn't gather up his crops and put them in barns. He just leaves them to rot. You know, I mean. So again, there is a, there is a context here that matters for sure. I agree with you. But it but it's a, but it is it is sort of the beginning of a, of a conversation that Jesus is now having with the crowd about priorities, about where your treasure is, about what do you invest in, and why why should you even care? Why does it matter? And the first sort of reason it matters is because it might all be gone tomorrow. And and if you could invest in things like God that were eternal, wouldn't that make more sense? So it's kind of like, you know, that's, that's where he's kind of going.
2: Yeah. Well, it's kind of a new, I don't know, even though he's been talking about himself and like who he is and like all through the Bible, too, is talks about taking care of others and stuff. In some ways, it is kind of like a new topic because I mean, you know, it's kind of bringing in the idea of like, like an afterlife, you know, and some of that, and then just the, yeah, just making it a lot more broader, I think, than they would have necessarily
0: It is, and I think, it reminds, it? I think that's very true. It is a shift. It, it is a different discussion. And I think <clears throat> it reminds us of one of the things that over the last few years has become really important to me, because they didn't realize it so much before in the Gospels. And that's how responsive Jesus is in his discipleship. He doesn't, you know, it it would be easy to think he goes out in the day and he's like, today, I'm going to teach people about this and this and this and this. But when you read the Gospel, you discover is mostly what happens is he's like, he starts talking about something and then somebody asks him a question. He's like, okay, I guess that's what we're talking about. And I think this is an example of that, where he's talking about persecution. He's going to get back to that. But he's talking about persecution and he's talking about, You know the end times. Well, he hasn't got to the end times. He's kind of, but he's talking about the future and the Holy Spirit. And then someone brings up this question about the inheritance, and he's like, instead of seeing that as a distraction or being annoyed, he might be a little annoyed. But instead of just being annoyed or seeing it as a distraction, he actually says, "Okay, this is what's on people's hearts." And and suddenly we have some of the most famous passages about these things. But I do believe they come from the conversation brought to him, and I think that's important because. I think God, Jesus, we see that His curriculum was life itself, and I think that's really kind of important, even in our own discipleship. Yes, Jolene, I see your virtual hand raised.
3: Okay, uh, what I was thinking about, and uh, yes, this uh, this passage has also made me uncomfortable times too, because uh, I tend to be the type that, uh, if I'm worried about something, and it's something that I think I have the least bit of possibility of having some form of control over I'll make a plan for it to try to uh to like try to handle the situation. And so uh so previously when I read this passage I thought like that that the problem that the that the man was being picked on or you know in this in the in the story about the barns and the such that the man was being picked on for having a plan. But now I realize that no that's not mm, that's not what the story is saying at all. The story is saying that he could have been, you know, it was more about generosity and his not being willing to share than right. the fact that he was planning for the future.
0: Even if you argue, as I've heard some people do, that the problem is in his plan, he was presumptuous, which is true. He presumed he was gonna live for a lot longer. But even there, I think what you really come back to is the problem in his presumption was that he he gave too much credit to wealth. He thought wealth would be with him forever. And not recognizing that it's God who will be with him forever, and so even in his even it's not that he planned, but it's that in his plans he misunderstood the nature of things. um, I think is kind of uh, you know how you can see it. So yes, agreed. Really good. Uh, So we go on, verse twenty two. It's again he's continuing this thread right now. So now he's kind of this is the conversation we're having. So he's going to continue with it, and he says this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, "Therefore," he even says, "therefore," in case we. Uh, forget it's connected to the parable he just told and the and the whole story of the guy wanting his inheritance. This is all a flow. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. And I just want to point out because I think it's important for this, this, this little sermonette, this little passage, this little conversation to make any sense at all. It's important that we acknowledge that that is not a simple statement he starts with and he knows it. And it's even less simple in some ways, for them, that was for us. I mean, they're they're a lot closer to having no food than 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 most of us have been. There've certainly been days in my life where it was pretty close, but but they're a lot closer to being on the edge. You know, they're they don't know the prosperity that a lot of us know. And so he says that do not worry about your life. Well, that's a tough one right off the bat. Don't worry about what you will eat. Well, sometimes if you don't have food, you worry about what you will eat. Or about your body, what you will wear. A lot of us may not worry so much about that, but again, that shows I think the level of of, of difference between a lot of us. They didn't have multiple sets of clothes hanging in their closet, and this was a, a legitimate question. You know, do I have clothes to protect me? Do I have clothes that you know are are not thread completely worn out? So I just want to acknowledge this is not a simple statement. He doesn't start with the like, well, this is obvious. He starts with the challenge, and then goes on to talk about why he's making the challenge. So he says therefore i tell you do not worry about your life about what you will eat or about your body what you will wear for life is more than food and the body more than clothes. So he's actually going to give us three reasons why we shouldn't invest in these really practical things, right? It seems it seems goofy. You know, don't don't spend your time trying to eat and and protect yourself with shelter and clothes. That just sounds too much, right? And it's supposed to. But he's going to give us three reasons to help us understand what he's saying more. And the first thing is, he wants to be really clear, and this comes directly from the previous parable, this lines up really well, is that that's not what life is. You know, so when you say you're worrying about life, you're worrying about what you eat and your body. And Jesus wants to say, well, you can worry about life in a sense, but that's not life. Life is more than food. It isn't just about the food. And the body, frankly, is about more than clothes. He's like, you're missing the, the real sacredness. The sacred nature and the beauty of these things of life and of the body you're you're kind of descending into so much it's just so small in comparison again i'm saying this understanding it doesn't feel small to them or to us but that's the first reason he gives for not worrying about it it's the wrong thing it's like the guy who built the barns and put his wealth in it wealth seems really important but when you're dead suddenly that wealth doesn't matter likewise for the span of eternity There is a life which is more than what you eat, and there is a body which will be more than clothes. What is that life about? What is that body about? We're looking for something bigger and deeper even than that. So there's something else to invest in. Then he goes on, and he says this, Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Well, this is interesting and this should be comforting to us. I think Jesus means it to be because the second reason, so the first reason is it's not as important as, you know, there's more important things, believe it or not, than what you eat and and sort of preserving your physical life. So look at that. But the second thing he says, which makes a a really important uh, corollary to the first point, second thing he says is God isn't going to ignore those things. He's not saying that God won't worry about what you eat. Or about what you wear. He says God takes care of it for ravens who don't work at it at all. They don't do anything and God cares for them. And guess what? You are more valuable than they are. So the second reason he says don't worry about it is because God cares about you more than you know. And God understands. He says in a in, uh, uh, different, uh, one of the other gospel writers actually says the phrase, your father in Matthew, I believe, says your father knows you need these things. He knows you need these things. And that's the implication here too. I'm not saying don't worry about them because God is so far removed from your life that he thinks you don't need them. He knows you need them. That's a reason that you don't have to worry about it. So life is more than this. But even though life is more than this, God still pays attention to these little pragmatic details. So that's the second reason he says you don't have to worry about it. So that's two reasons. And then he says this, the third thing, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? The third thing is it doesn't help. (laughs) Third thing is, it doesn't help to worry about it it doesn't help to spend all your time investing in it and making it happen and and again it's not that planning is bad it's not that thinking is bad it's not that goals are bad none of those things are bad sometimes they're very good again solomon and others and other, and 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 other uh scripture writers all acknowledge those are can be very good things but but the the priority it's what are you really focused on and he says guess what you cannot change it the guy who put built his barns and put his wealth in it couldn't change the fact that he was gonna die that night. And so he says, since you cannot do this very little thing, meaning by worrying add a single hour to your life, since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? You just can't change it. And I actually think this is really significant in a really practical way. I, I know that for me and, and other people I know who, who, who do struggle with anxiety more than I do, that a lot of times the whole of the anxiety is the, or the worry about things is there is this, I think, thing in the back of our mind that says, if I don't worry about it, it won't get better. I, there's something about our worrying about it that, that we connect with, actually, prevention. And I think Jesus is pointing out that connection is not there. Now, we could talk about planning and prevention, but that's not the same thing. Worry and prevention are not the same thing. Something did not not happen because you worried about it. thats That didn't affect it at all. And I think that's the third point. So Jesus is making three points, but why you shouldn't fret, you shouldn't worry, you shouldn't spend all of your energy investing in these things, these material important material things. One is that there's things that are more important, you gotta invest in those. Two is that God knows you need those things so you can trust him. And three is it doesn't actually do you any good to be anxious and worry about them because that doesn't change anything. So there's no point in doing that. He goes on and kind of reiterates what I think is probably the most important point of the three which is God's care and that's what he says consider how the wildflowers grow they do not labor or spin yet I tell you not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these if that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire how much more will he clothe you you of little faith and this is the bottom line point you can invest in God you can be rich towards God And I'm not just talking here about tithing your money to the church. Although if you want to read it that way, send me a check. I'll let you know where to send it. Uh, No, he's saying you can be rich in spirit towards God. You can be rich and generous in your, your time and your worship and your attention toward God. And yes, with your money, although I think often that means helping other people out. He says you can do that and you can invest in that because God is taking care of you. Because God is there and God is loving you. Now, if you have questions... About the practicality of that and why sometimes we do struggle with things like food and clothes. Welcome to the club. I don't have all the answers, but nonetheless, this is what Jesus is saying here. And it's relevant that we we recognize that this is the point he's making, of that we can trust God that to take care of us. If he goes on, he says, do not, and again, this is the this is the heart of the exhortation. Now he's going to summarize what the heart is. Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things. Oh, here it is. And your father knows that you need them. So that's kind, of the, that's kind of the summation. Don't run after these things. The idea of running after these things is that's where your effort is. That's where you're scrambling. That's where you put your energy. That's where you're investing. It all becomes about this. And he says, the whole world does that. Everybody who doesn't believe in God does that. Or in his case, everybody who believes in these other gods who aren't involved in their lives do that. that. You're different and you're different because you know better because you know that God cares about you. And guess what? Your father knows you need these things. Nothing in this passage says you don't need them. So if you read this and you're like, "Well, how can I not worry about food? I need food." God says, "I know you need food." That's I'm not saying that's why you shouldn't worry about it. I'm saying you shouldn't worry about it because there are more important things because I will take care of that because I know you need those things. Again, whatever that looks like in the practical world. And then number 3 is because you can't change it anyway. Not by not just by worrying, not just by worrying about it. And then he says this line, seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. And again, I'm not going to give you a, a necessarily answer. I want, I want to pause here for discussion. But again, I, I just want to give permission for struggle with this passage and, and, and give you permission by saying to you that for many, many years, this this was a passage that I wrestled with really strongly. Not that I didn't believe it, but I did believe it, but I couldn't understand what it meant because I felt like to the best of my understanding, I was seeking God's kingdom and these things were not being added. And so I know so it's, I think it's I think it's okay if you're wrestling with that. And I, I can share briefly some of where I've come to from that though I still don't have the complete answer on that if it comes up in the discussion. But first I want to hear what do you guys think? What do you think about this passage? How does it make you feel? Uh, what what's what's your response? Kind of where are you at with this this particular exhortation?
1: I can't imagine being starved and not worrying about it and seeking God's kingdom first. <laughs> Somehow that would not be my first thought when I didn't have anything to eat.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that's fair. And and while I think that in a sense it's, it's abstractedly true, even for someone who's poor, and could be even an encouragement to them, it's probably also relevant to step back and remember where this conversation started with the guy who was worried about his inheritance. So not mm-hmm. a guy who's actually starving, but a guy who is worried about more. <laughs> So there might that might be relevant too to the context as well.
2: I really like it. I mean, I think it really just kind of helps put things in perspective and helps you see, like you know, some of the things I worry about or are concerned about, or even for others and stuff like that too. You know, really aren't what's most important, and it just really helps you see that you know like God's got my back and like he's what he says you know and who he is is like real and there
0: that's really good and I think you've, you've said the heart of it really well and I think that's really important you know I think that I think that's really good yeah makes a difference to, to to believe that God has your back in a sense even if you don't always know the specifics to know that's who God is can make a big difference for sure I think that's really good Anybody else have any thoughts on this?
1: Actually, it kind of ties in with the the idea that he expresses that we're we're going to suffer for his sake. So this is just a different kind of suffering.
0: Yeah. That's good. The, That's interesting. The hunger. Yeah, because he did talk about that, right? So yeah. it's also that the sense that what he's promising it's interesting because he is promising bigger right he's promising he's saying look i'm promising that whatever happens to you now there's something more important so if you don't have enough food you could see him saying that there will be there will be more and and there's undoubtedly truth to that because again there are times people have suffered from hunger we can't say god has prevented Mm -hmm. that that so i think that's part of it what's interesting about this passage is he is also giving them encouragement that he even cares about that suffering and he's not Sort of unduly just willy-nilly about it he's aware of it and he cares about that that need for it i will i will share with you because i think it's relevant one of the things that i feel like i learned and and that kind of the i don't have the answers to this and and there's all sorts of possible answers but just just where i'm coming from very very briefly is that for years as a pastor i i really have struggled with with poverty and and right now it's it's one of the better times in our life and maybe it's going to be the best financially we've ever had that's very possible that just appears to be a possibility my wife and i are both uh you know uh not you know trying not to build barns but but um but i do think that um for years i struggled with that and i and and to the best that i understood what the phrase meant allowing for the fact that i'm human and my faith is not perfect and i could just be not making you know doing it right I felt like I was seeking the kingdom of God and not having these things added to me. And, and it, and it was always a conflict and a wrestle because on the one hand I could say, well, I haven't actually starved and my kids have always eaten. And that's true. That is true. You know, but there've been some pretty severe moments and there've been some pretty significant decisions we've had to make. And so it, it was just a wrestling of what, why do I not see this play up? And then I realized over the years that, that I had in my head this idea, partly because of this passage, but also because of the tradition and the culture I grew up in as a Christian and even as a pastor, kind of where I was, uh, as I was mentored, I really had the idea that that what this passage meant was that I should, ne- I should never, ever seek to have more than I needed. I should never have store. I should never need to store things in a barn. I should just kind of always be living on the edge. And I don't know that I would have articulated it that way, but I kept making decisions that showed I believed that. Um, I kept choosing things where I was barely making enough uh, you know uh, I, again I, it's not necessary but if I told you the yearly annual income I made some years you you would be astounded that we survived I am and and but it, but there was times, like but I don't need more and what happened about I don't know maybe five or six years ago I was wrestling through this with God and I felt like God said to me I want you to ask for more. Now, hear me clearly. I'm not a health and wealth guy, and I don't think God was saying to me, ask for more, and I'm going to give you more. You know, I'm going to make you rich. But I felt like he was saying, you don't even ask. You you just, you just, you don't even ask. You just assume you don't understand this, which you didn't. And you just, you just, you know that I'm in charge, which I am. But it's like God said to me, I want you to start looking to me. Take this verse in Matthew and in Luke, and take these verses and say to me, okay, You said you care about these needs, help me with them. And what's interesting is not that I don't think that turned things around and I don't think God gave me wealth from that. What it did, though, is it opened me up to realize something that I only realized in the last couple of years. And that's that part of my problem with this verse is that I inherently believed that seeking the kingdom of God meant not having everything I needed. and if I believed that seeking the kingdom of God meant not having everything I needed, then how could God possibly help me both seek the kingdom of God and give me what I needed if I already believed those were at odds with each other? It's like, anytime you provided for me, I would be like, well, I guess this isn't for me. Um, and so I, 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 this is not everybody's answer. It may not be anybody's answer, but mine. I'm just sharing it with you as a, as a as a story of how God, the tension in this verse God wrestled with to bring me to a really important revelation. That my expectation that seeking the kingdom meant having nothing was the wrong expectation and isn't what this verse says. In fact, this verse, I wouldn't say it says the opposite, but it certainly doesn't say that. Um, Now, none of that disputes the fact that poverty is possible, that God did allow me to go through some poverty in my family, that things were, all of that's still there. I still don't have all the answers. I still don't understand maybe what seeking his kingdom always means. But this idea that you can invest in God and he actually cares about your needs and wants to provide them and that he's not looking to hold them out way from you. Ironically, that was the part I was missing every time I read the verse, was that the verse says God knows you need them and he and he is there for you. So, you can go too far and say God doesn't want me to be poor. That's clearly not always true. You could you could but you can also go too far the other way and say there's there's you know God doesn't promise that he cares about our needs. He actually does promise that. It's right here. So that's why we don't have to worry. So I don't know if any of that made any sense. Uh, If it didn't, you can ignore it. If it did, you can take it for whatever it's worth. Um, But that's some of the journey I've been on. Anybody else have any thoughts on that before we press on? Because he continues. He's not done with these thoughts. But any other other thoughts before we go to the next really beautiful paragraph, in fact?
2: I mean, I guess he does, yeah, when you were saying that. Because I was thinking kind of before, like, is kind of hitting on more like bigger like eternal things. But he does say that he'll clothe us. And so I mean yeah. So that's I don't have a (laughs) cause for me to think about it anymore.
0: I mean that's kind of right too. It's like, but yeah, so yeah. Um, Because if he
2: hadn't said that, even, too, I mean, like, okay, okay, so we're, yeah, we're all gonna die anyway, and then we're gonna go, like, be with God, and then we really will have, you know, like, all our physical needs met, and so, I mean we're definitely not going to have all our physical needs met here to certain degrees otherwise like we wouldn't die but then it does say yeah that he'll clothe us and yeah, yeah so
0: he could have said does... he could have left out number 2 but instead he reinforces number 2 he could have yeah. said don't worry about your life because there's more important things and don't worry about your life um what was the third one because Oh, because it doesn't make any difference. He could have just said those two things. Instead, he says twice that you also don't need to worry about it because look at how God takes care of the, the the fields and look how God takes care of the ravens. Twice he brings that up, that God's care for us is important. So again, I don't know all the practicalities of this. Again, I'm not arguing that 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 it means God will never let somebody who believes in him go into poverty. I think it's clear that does happen. But I do think he is saying this is an important that that the back to the heart of it. I've got your back. I like the way you said that. Right?
2: Yeah.
0: I'm here for you. And and he could have even said, Don't worry about these things because they don't matter. He could have said that, but he doesn't. He says there's more important things, but then he says, But God knows you need them. So they do matter. So that's what's interesting to me is that he actually says they do matter. They're not irrelevant. Well, yeah.
2: Well, and it's interesting too. He talks about the ravens and the the flowers and they are here today and gone tomorrow but he talks about how he's provided you know like for them but the same things still happen to them you know they still die they get killed there might not be enough rain someone might step on a flower you know
1: it's true (laughs) i just
2: I'm just saying say get through it, it's, yeah. No, it's
1: good, no, it's good. It,
2: but it does seem like there's an inherent tension in there, so yeah, it must, yeah. but sure. yeah, I like what you said about pointing that he, he's aware of that and he is doing something about it.
0: So I think part of the tension, not not, because I can't resolve all of it, but part of the tension is that he's acknowledging two things at once which inherently have a little bit of tension. One, that there's things, that the eternal things are more important than these material things. So much more important that you shouldn't even worry about them. But at the same time, he's saying... These material things are not a zero priority. You just shouldn't invest in them. You should be rich towards God. You can invest in these things a little bit. Of course, we will. We all do things to eat and we all do things to wear clothes. And I don't think he's saying don't do that. He's just saying don't worry about them. Don't make them your heart. Don't make them your treasure. Don't make them your priority. Don't make that the thing that your life becomes about. If your life consists of these things, you will always be disappointed because life isn't there. I really think that's the bottom line. And so then he's saying, but but seek therefore those eternal things. And God knows you need these other things. You're not going to miss out in that sense on them. And then he says this, it goes into the next verse, which is really beautiful. Because it says, Do not be afraid, little flock, which I just, frankly, you could just stop there. I just love that picture. There's a, there's a few moments in the Gospels where Jesus just seems very um paternal and i think it's usually when he's talking about how the father looks at us and and being one with the father he knows it exactly there's these moments there's a few moments where jesus gets very paternal very sweet very soft very gentle um and and talks about us like flocks or chickens or 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 just I, i just really like those pictures so i just like this idea do not be afraid little flock so here's all these statements they might make you afraid they might make you encouraged they might sound like a reproof they might sound like an encouragement but whatever you've come from now, his conclusion is this. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. But this is why. Don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Now, this is an interesting way to summarize, because I think he's now, he's now taken the contrast and the tension and actually turned it on his head a little bit. And here's what I mean by that. He's been saying, don't invest in these other things, um, but invest in the things of God because they're eternal and these aren't. But now what he's saying is, don't be afraid even about these little things, because your father's given you the kingdom. Again, not meaning those little things don't matter, but meaning if the father's giving you the kingdom, what else is he not going to be willing to give you? Again, not health and wealth here, not meaning you'll get all the material stuff you want, but just a point of how much he cares. It's not like he's chosen to give us the smaller thing. He's chosen to give us the bigger thing. And he's chosen gladly to do so. We haven't had to coerce the father to give us the kingdom, the whole kingdom. I, I guess if we could think of this like a real kingdom, I think there's a sort of a, we might see the parable a little bit better here. If if, if you were, let's say that you, let's say, let's say literally the king of England, because it's a king now, right? Let's say the king of England came to you and said, we have just discovered that you are actually uh the, the the heir to the kingdom for some reason or other. I'll let you work out the soap opera details, but we have just discovered that you are in fact the heir to Great Britain. You are the new king or queen of England and, and I'm happy to pass it on to you. I'm happy to give it to you. And what if when you heard that, you said, oh man, I don't know if I can do that because I have a house here that I live in and I'm afraid if I leave this house, nobody will maintain it and keep it up. And the king's like, but I'm giving you Buckingham Palace. And you're like, yeah, but, but this is my house. And I don't want to leave the house. I kind of feel like that's the picture Jesus is giving. Not that you don't need a house to live in, but hey, I'm giving you the kingdom. And and you're, you're kind of turning aside the kingdom for these small, small things. Guess what? I'll make sure that, you know, you've got a Buckingham Palace. I'll make sure you've got a, the, the, I'll make sure you have what you need. And again, I'm trying not to make promises he doesn't make and get into explanations that we all wrestle with. The tension's still there. But I just like the picture that your father is pleased to give you the kingdom. So that's why you don't have to worry as much about all these things that are so much smaller than the kingdom. All right, yes, Jolene, I see your hand.
3: Well, uh, this uh, this passage is also really encouraging me because it reminds me of the quote that uh, faith is living without scheming. And... I know some of you know uh, from my story and my being a group a long time that I've definitely dealt with uh, certain individuals scheming against me. And so uh, it's, and of course my knee-jerk reaction is, well, well, I need to watch that person and I need to take notes and I need to do that. And I'm like, no, that's not how God wants me to handle this situation. God wants me to have, Faith in him that he's seeing it all and that he's in control and that he's at work and he wants me to focus on my kids and all the things that I need to focus on and not necessarily be a part of tit for tat or any kind of scheming or anything like that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's really good. I also love the, the, that he's pleased, and that one, one way to translate this is that your father is eager to give you the kingdom. Because I do think sometimes we feel like we have to convince God and coerce him. And so I just love the eagerness and the please here. Yes, Meredith, you had your hand raised.
2: Um, well, I was just thinking too. I mean, we're we have like the Holy Spirit, and we know about Jesus' death and resurrection, and we have all the rest of this, and you know, and lived in that for a while and it does seem like in context to like make a lot of sense and I don't know that there would necessarily be that tension there for them because he's really just kind of getting them out of the idea of you know right here right now you know to the bigger like picture and who he is too so it makes sense that he would even bring in the things about you know like He's also taking care of this. Yeah, we're looking at a much bigger kingdom, a much bigger picture, but that doesn't mean, you know, we just go to that kingdom and leave this kingdom, you know, type thing. So I guess in that sense, it, I don't know, it seems like kind of like a perfect way to like put it that would like, you know, like make sense about what his kingdom is and what it would look like and who he is more.
0: That's good. And I, I like what you said. I think sometimes things build tension over history, right? There, there sometimes things maybe work clearer without tension, but we have so much baggage of p- ways people have read it and talked about it and discoursed about it. And you know, I can't read a passage like this and not remember a conversation I had with a guy at University of New Mexico campus who had a backpack on his back and a bike, and that was his t- some possessions. And he and I had a long argument. About whether anybody should have any possessions at all, except apparently for a backpack and a bicycle. We didn't get into why those were okay, but 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 that you know the long discussion about whether you should have any possessions at all. He didn't. I told him you know one of the things I possess is books, and he was like, "Yeah, you shouldn't read any books except the Bible." I mean, he was clearly he was you know very very extreme in a lot of ways. But that conversation with him, I can't I can't read this without the conversation. I'm always arguing with him in this conversation. Well, they weren't doing that. You know, they didn't have all this other history to deal with. So I think you make a good point, too, that maybe it wasn't that complicated to them. Maybe it was just encouraging. I think that's really possible. Um, I actually really like where he goes with this, too. The very next verse is a beautiful sort of tension. It's almost a resolving tension. He says, as a result of this, he says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Then he says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. I want you to think about this for a second, because there's a real irony here that would be easy to miss. The first point, sell your possessions, that makes sense if you want to even go like where my friend at UNM went, if you wanted to say, look, he's going to give it, he's glad to give us the kingdom so we don't need anything, we should sell all our possessions. What's funny, though, is if the goal is to have nothing, why does he encourage us then to give it to people who have nothing? Because they've already reached the goal. So it is fascinating to me that part of what's true and has been true throughout scripture, right? We saw it all the way back to Leviticus, probably Genesis, but we saw it codified in Leviticus as a law. We've seen it talked about by the prophets. Almost every single prophet has talked about this need to give to the poor. We, we see it all the way through the New Testament. We, we see this over and over, this idea that in God's community, he does want us to sell our possessions and give to the poor. But clearly, clearly, he's not intending this ridiculous, infinite game where I sell all of my possessions and I give everything to you, and then you have to sell all of your possessions that I just gave you and give them back to me. And then, I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Clearly there's an idea of division here, right? There's an idea of sell some of your possessions and, and, get, and invest in the poor, that that's part of how you invest in God's kingdom. And if that's how God sees investing in his kingdom, it just, again, the reason I said it's almost a resolving tension is because it goes back to God's priority is to take care of people. That when he says he knows your needs, one of the ways he wants to take care of your needs is by, is by encouraging those who are part of his kingdom to take their surplus. And instead of putting them in a barn, give them to the guy that needs them. And I, I really like that because, again, it both shows that God knows we need things, but also shows that if we're rich towards God, we're actually going to be part of the way we're going to meet those needs for other people. And I really like that. And then he goes on and says, provide purses for yourselves that will never wear out a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. So this is this is back to that idea of what uh, what is your priority? What are you investing in? And the reason you should invest in the kingdom is not because these other things are bad or wrong or even you don't need them. But here's another reason. You should invest in the kingdom because these things will let you down. These things will ultimately wear out. And I do think there is, he doesn't talk about it specifically here, but I think it's a, I think it's a fair extrapolation and I think other scriptures point to it. This goes beyond questions about material wealth. It goes into questions about our own kingdom building in our own lives. What are the kingdoms that we build in a sense? What are the the things that we're building in our lives that we're counting on to protect us, to make us whole? And I think Jesus would say, be careful that you're not building kingdoms that are gonna wear out. Be careful you're not building kingdoms that will fail, that thieves can steal from you that moths can destroy because he says where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So if you have investing in building kingdoms that are going to wear out when they wear out, guess what goes with them? Your heart. It, it makes you heart sick. It makes you despairing. It makes you, you know, it, it just, it, 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 it makes you cynical. Your heart goes with them. And, and even if they're not wearing out, that's where your heart is. That's where you're focused. So watch what you invest in. Watch what you devote yourself to. Watch where you prioritize your time. Is it okay to eat? Of course it's okay to eat. In fact, I think it is moral to eat. I think you should eat. But but it is also, shouldn't be eating shouldn't be your life. Eating shouldn't be everything you're devoted and committed to. We have lots of people in our country who have figured that out, right? Have understood that there's a certain obsession with food that can be unhealthy. Eating is a thing we do. Eating is a thing we should do. But that can't be where we build our kingdom or invest our treasure. But the same can be true of me as I build churches as a pastor. It can be true of of people in their their careers. It can be true of people seeking prestige or or their their version of success or their version of, of community. Even good things can become kingdoms that will wear out. And that's why he says, Man, put everything towards the kingdom of God because God has given it to you. That will not be worn out. You can't miss it and you'll never lose it. Uh, So watch where you invest. And one of the ways you do that, just in here in the middle of it is, take some of those things that are surplus for you and give them to other people, which proves they're not bad. God is not trying to ruin poor people by giving them more, more things. It's good for them to have things. It's good for you to have things, but that can't be your life. Invest in the kingdom, one way you do that is by helping other people. So I think all of that is built in here altogether. and notice this poor guy who asked a simple question about his inheritance, he's not got a lot to sort out. It's like, what am I well, okay now what do I do about this now? Am I supposed to am I supposed to not care if my brother shares his inheritance? Um, which by the way, we don't know for sure, but probably was an unreasonable request. We're not sure the context, but but firstborns, that's not the way the law works. they weren't required to share their inheritance. Um, but what's interesting is what if the brother's listening and he's like, well, I guess I could share my inheritance. That could also be a result of this conversation. So anyway, I just think it's fascinating to go back to that original thing and see what are the permutations going through their, their heads now as they've been listening to Jesus. But hopefully the bottom line is they're understanding that there are more important things to invest in, that Jesus is offering them something bigger. He's offering them Buckingham Palace instead of you know their house. So from here, I feel like Jesus has made his point, and so he makes another segue. Again, he connects it all, but he was talking about persecution in the Holy Spirit. Then he starts talking about you know, the, the eternal things versus the, the material things, and what are you going to invest in, kind of kingdom building, your own kingdom building, Versus kingdom receiving of what God's giving you, he kind he goes to there. Now he's going to start talking about the end times, and I don't think it's so. It is a little bit of a segue back to where he was because he was talking about persecution to come, things in the future. But it's also still connected because what are the end times? Well, that's a that's an eternal thing. That's again at that moment when everything else is going to rust and 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 be stolen and destroyed. What are we left with? What are the things we'll be left with? So it's all connected but it does feel a little bit like he's kind of made his point now he's kind of heading back to a topic he was sort of edging towards already but now he's just connected it to this other idea of of where are you where are you connected um in fact in matthew we have a similar passage again as we've often talked about it is it is not a problem in understanding the integrity and and um uh inspiration inspiration and even infallibility of scripture which are all things i believe in It's not affecting those to say that the one of two things happens here. Either Jesus shares this same story more than once, and Matthew records it in one context and Luke in another. As a pastor, I have zero problem believing that happens all the time. I'm always sharing the same stories in different contexts. But number two is it's also possible that this is a story Jesus shared often, and Matthew puts it in a context that is making a specific emphasis, and Luke puts it in a context which is making a different specific emphasis, and since Jesus said it both times, they're both fine, but they're both choosing where they want to put it because they want to make a specific point. Either way, this is in Matthew. And when it's in Matthew, it is ex- it is very connected to end times. He's about to tell a parable. Luke isn't even as clear that this is about the end times. It, it, it certainly makes sense, I think, in any context, but Matthew's really clear. He says it's absolutely about the end times. Um, and, and and But Luke, on the other hand, shares it right here after Jesus talks about what we devote ourselves to, what we plan and prepare for. And so it is a really nice segue. It's a really nice transition between what are you investing in and what's going to happen in the end times. He has this parable, which really straddles both ideas. So I think that's why it makes sense that it was here. Um, And this is what he says. Be dressed, ready for the service, and keep your lamps burning. Like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. So here he, he's 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 gone on this discussion. They may not realize he's talking about end times right now. I don't know what they're thinking, but 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 he is gonna talk about end times later. And again, I think that's the context. But here's the picture. He says, You should be people who are ready to serve your master, who's gone to a wedding banquet and you want to be ready, as soon as he gets home, he's going to expect you, you know, maybe, let's think about what a wedding banquet in these days means. Number one, it might mean he's traveled a fair distance. You might travel a significant ways to go to a wedding banquet. And when you get there, you might then have to come home with your donkey, or you're on your foot, on foot, or with your horse, or however you're coming back, you're going to get back to your house, you're going to be tired, you're going to be dusty, you're going to be dirty, you're going to be hungry, you're going to expect your servants to serve you right away. The other thing about a wedding banquet, though, is it's very unpredictable. We don't know how long it is. It's a banquet. It's the party. It's not just the wedding itself. It's kind of the after party. We don't know how long it is. And we don't even know, you know, probably the references to a Jewish banquet, but whether it's Jewish or it's Gentile, both banquets, wedding banquets at this time of history tended to be long and drawn out, even to the point of where they could be days. Think about just, just a, a, an extreme example, you know, think about uh, King Xerxes back in, in uh, in, uh, in Esther and how he had a banquet that was like half a year. So, you know, the the master's gone to this banquet. He is not beholden to you as his servant, It's the idea here. He's not going to, he doesn't have a phone. He's not going to tell you when he's coming home. He's going to come home. But when he comes home, could be the middle of the night, could be a day later, he's going to be expecting you to be ready for him. That's the picture, right? That's the image. And Jesus is saying, this is how you should be. Be dressed, be ready for service. Keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for the master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. That's all well and good. It's an interesting picture. It's like, so you're telling us, and, and again, not that this is wrong, and the Jews would have even responded to this picture on some level that, okay, so God's like this. We should just be prepared to serve him at any time. That's true. But Jesus does a really weird thing with this picture. Listen to the next verse. It does not go where I think they thought it would go. He says, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. This feels to me like one of those parables where they must be going like, wait, what? Did I fall asleep? That this, this, this is not what, what? Because he's like, be ready to wait on him. You don't know when he's going to come and it's really good you be waiting on him because as soon as he shows up, he's going to dress, he's going to serve you and he's going to feed you at the table. and, and What a bizarre turn this is, right? But it is kind of this picture of both of these things are true in our relationship with God. He calls us to be faithful to Him, He calls us to be devoted to Him. But what He's really calling to us is to enjoy our relationship with Him. And He delights in serving us and He delights in feeding us. So it's a really interesting motivation. It's like it's the right thing to do as a servant to be ready for Him. But guess what? It's not only right, but guess what? If you're ready for Him when He comes, it's great. It's like fantastic. He's going to feed you. You're suddenly going to be the wedding banquet receiver. It's just, it's this crazy sort of picture, but it's really cool. And then he goes on, he says, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. Again, you just don't know when he's coming. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, now it's clear the context is the same, the point is the same, but the parable is now shifted, right? You understand there's no connection between the thief and the servants and the master. This is just another illustration of the same point. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. He's like, okay, point is, you don't know when he may be coming from wedding banquet. He may be coming as a thief. You don't know when the Lord is coming. This is where, I don't know if it's clear to them, it makes sense to us, and Matthew reinforces this, and later verses in Luke reinforce this as well, that he's talking about the Lord's second coming. He's talking about Jesus coming back again. I don't know if there's any possible way they could conceive that that's what Jesus was saying to them, because I, they were still very, very hazy about the fact that Jesus was leaving. <laughs> so the idea of him coming back, I think, is a little confusing to them. I'm not sure. It's possible that the way they hear this is that he's he's reproving them for not recognizing him now, right? Some of this could be a first coming parable for them. I think it's also a second coming parable, but for them, it could have been a, hey, you're not really prepared for the Messiah. You're, you're missing me. You're worried about your inheritances. You're worried about your your religious authority. You're worried about whether I'm doing things on the Sabbath I shouldn't do in your opinion. You're worried about all these things. And because of that, you're not ready. You're not prepared. You're missing the banquet. You're missing the party that I bring. You're missing me serving you, which is what I came to do. That's entirely possible that he's, he's saying something which has two meanings at once. For them, he's talking about who he is right now. And for us, it's also a reminder that he will come back and we also should be ready because it could happen at any time. And the point is, you don't know. And that's what he says. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Now, again or now. Either way, it's true. Some of you are missing me because you weren't ready for me. Or he could be saying, this is in the future when I come. And then Peter asks this really interesting question. Good, faithful Peter, who 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 is willing to speak up when everybody else is still just going, what is he even talking about? Peter says this, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? Now, there's two ways to read this question. And unfortunately, I don't know that I know for sure which is which. I can tell you where what makes the most sense to me in the flow, but I'm not really sure. This, this question implies that Peter is suspecting it's one way or the other and trying to get confirmation from Jesus. What I don't know is which he suspects. In other words, he could be saying, Lord, are you telling this parable to us because it applies to us specifically? Is that what you're really saying? Because I think that's what you're saying. Or are you telling this to every, or is this relevant to everyone? Or is it just relevant to us? Or he could be saying, why are you telling us this parable? Because we know you're here. Why aren't you telling it to everyone else? Why are you just telling it to us? So I don't know which, which angle Peter's coming from, but he's trying to get clarity what the target audience is. And the problem is that I'm not sure that Jesus' answer makes it entirely clear what his answer is or what Peter's question was. But here's how I, here's how I read the flow, and I'm, I'm happy to hear your, your your counter take on this in a second. I think Peter is saying, why are you telling us this? Shouldn't everybody be ready for the Messiah? And if in fact Peter thinks Jesus is talking about now, Peter's probably like, We did see you. We see you. We're ready. We're alert. We're here. We're serving you. Why are you telling us this parable? Why aren't you? Maybe it just looks like you're telling us, but you're actually telling everyone else. But if he is just telling, but I think he is telling them, and I think he is talking about his second coming. And here's why I think that is based upon Jesus' answer. It it fits a certain flow this way. Here's what he says. The Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? We know that not very long after this, Jesus will say to Peter, feed my sheep. We know that the apostles are going to be given a commission with authority to take care of the flocks. We know that in fact that, so when Jesus says that, that might be the answer to Peter. Peter might be saying, why are you telling us this? We already know you're here. And Jesus might be saying, because you're my good and faithful manager, I'm about to give you guys an authority to to be in charge of of feeding the rest of my servants. I'm going to give you an authority to care for the flock. And, And so part of being in authority to care for the flock is that I want you to know I'm coming back, and I want you to stay alert to the fact that I'm coming back, and I want that to impact how you treat the flock. As he goes on, see if that doesn't make sense because he says, it will be good for the servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Doing what? Feeding the flock. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming and then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. And the master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he's not aware of. And so if he is talking to them as leaders, Then that's his point is if you know I'm coming back and you stay true to that mission and you don't get tired, you'll know that I come at any minute, it will make you better carers of the flock. You'll be less inclined to abuse them. You'll be less inclined to treat them poorly. You'll be less inclined to live your life for yourself, just drinking and doing whatever. You will be less inclined to be corrupt and or abusive. Two things that the Jewish leaders at that time were struggling with. Not all of them, but there was a contingent, a significant contingent of corruption and abuse within the leadership at that time. Of course, today, we never struggle with that in the churches, and I hope you know that I am being uh, ironic and sarcastic. Absolutely, we have leaders who struggle with abuse and corruption, and it is reasonable to think if they were expecting Jesus to walk in the door at any moment, maybe they would have been more faithful with their flock. Maybe they wouldn't have kind of been so quick to do it for themselves and to control themselves. So is that what's happening here? Is Jesus telling the apostles, it's important that you're expecting me at any minute because it will make you better managers of my flock? It looks to me like that's what he's saying, but I will grant you that may be a, 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 an understanding of that it, it, It's not 100% clear to me, but that's what it looks like to me. And I'll tell you what it reminds me of is when Paul says later, He says, the Lord is near, let your gentleness be evident to all. He makes a connection between remembering that the Lord is near, and I think in the context he might even mean on his way. The Lord is near, so be gentle. you know. Or even the Lord is is with you now, he's watching you, so be gentle. There is some correlation between how we treat other people and our expectation of how close Jesus is, either in the present or coming in the future, either way. Um, Now, here's the verse, That throws everything a little bit awry and gets a little tricky. He says about this, he says, The master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour as he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. All right. I I just don't think there's ever a context in which you should read a parable like this and come to the conclusion, as many people do, that Jesus ever says, I'm going to take believers and assign them to the place of unbelievers. That sounds by definition like the wrong idea. That's not something Jesus would do. There, there's. it's clear. There's the book of life and there's not. There's believers and there's not. There's not this sort of shifting pages and scale where, where you're kind of on the book and in this book and in that book at the same time. I don't think this passage is saying that true believers who lose themselves and forget the Lord is coming back are going to be cut to pieces and then lose their salvation. I don't even know what that would even look like. Like what, what, what is enough to forget the Lord's coming back? It's not on top of my mind every moment. So I don't, I don't think it's that. But I do think it's, I think he's, now I think he's looking at the Pharisees and the religious leaders that are there right now. And I think he's saying there's a lot of corruption and there's a lot of abuse in the leaders in his time. There's a lot of corruption, a lot of abuse among the Pharisees and they think they are righteous and they think they are the believers. But the truth is, if they do not actually look for the Messiah, which they're missing me now, if they're not actually paying attention and looking for the Messiah because they don't really believe I am the Messiah, then they are unbelievers. Their power, their corruption, no matter how righteous and self-righteous they are, they are to me assigned to the place of unbelievers. I think the implication can be the same for the apostles, not that they would lose their salvation, But if they don't really believe in Jesus, now they do, but this is before all this happens too. This is prior to the crucifixion and resurrection. So if any of them, as he's speaking to them, don't wait for the Lord's return, don't believe in his resurrection, decide that it was all a hoax, Judas, for example. If any of them decide that none of it really matters, then they would be assigned the place of unbelievers. By definition, they would be unbelievers. But part of the reflection, not the guarantee, not the 100% correlation, but part of the reflection of that is the link in all this is if you're not waiting for the Lord to return because you don't believe he's going to anyway, it will make you abusive and corrupt in your leadership. And if you're abusive and corrupt in your leadership, I don't care how, how self-righteous you are. If you're not waiting for the Messiah, if you're not believing in Jesus, it doesn't matter. You're assigned a place with the unbelievers. Anyway, I don't, again, that's how it all fits to me. I don't, I don't you, there's a lot of ways you can read it. I do think it's really important. There's a few of these parables where Jesus talks about unfaithful people being being treated like unbelievers, I think it's super important that we read what's the most obvious understanding of that, and that Jesus means those people are, in fact, unbelievers, not that they were believers who suddenly became unbelievers. That doesn't make sense in any of these contexts of these parables. So I think in this case, that has to be relevant as well. Um, so there was a lot there. Anyway, I know I went through a lot of things. Uh, any comments, questions, different ideas, different approach about all of this?
2: I have a question. Yep. I think it's okay. Maybe it's kind of a question. Like up further, like in 39, where he kind of compares himself to a thief. It seems a little odd to me especially before because he talks about you know returning from a wedding banquet and serving those
0: you know he is comparing himself to a thief there I, i agree i don't think see we read a lot of these like allegories and they're not i don't think he's saying in this story i'm the thief and you're the homeowner i think he's just making a point that a homeowner of a house would would be ready for the thief if he knew the thief was coming the trick is to be ready for a thief when you don't know he's coming. That way you wouldn't let him be broken into. How do you be ready for a thief when he's not coming? I don't know. You have a guard dog. You set a lock on your house. You, you do lots of things. Those aren't the things he's saying we should do when Jesus comes, because he's not saying I'm the thief. He's just saying yeah. in the same way that someone would be ready for a thief at any moment. So that's also how you should be ready for me at any moment. So I don't think he's saying he's a thief, but I think he is just making the The comparison that there's certain things we prepare for even though we don't have any idea when they're coming
2: yeah i still think it's kind of weird though
0: sure other thoughts
2: oh and also it makes sense what you said especially too i mean it doesn't seem like even at this time which i've i think i've embraced more as we've gone through it again um is the idea that they don't they don't really like have a sense of believers and unbelievers at this point
0: yeah it's a whole different thing right believers yeah be waiting for the messiah now i mean in his time now and 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 like the pharisees and the and the jews and the religious followers and unbelievers would be everybody else basically believers would be jews and unbelievers would be gentiles would be what they would tend to think and jesus is saying actually you can have unbelieving jews believe it or not you know that is part of his point i think yeah
2: yeah, well, but even just the idea, too, like, I mean, Jesus hasn't died and come back to life yet. Right. I mean, right. that's not going to really connect there's with them.
0: There's a whole different context, right, to all of this when, when it hasn't happened yet. I agree with you. It makes it all. And yet I think we are, I think we are, I think it's fair, and I think we're even um, encouraged by the other New Testament writers for us to read it backwards. I think we are encouraged to read the Gospels and see how the Gospel, how the how the crucifixion, resurrection plays into it. But at the same time, we have to understand that they can't be doing that when they're listening to him. And I don't think he's speaking nonsense to them. It's just that he's speaking things which have enough meaning that they 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 transcend that whole period and are true no matter what. But they will be seen differently by us and them. And that's OK. And sometimes the gospel writers themselves make that note. They say, he said this because later we realized yada, yada, yada. OK, but what did they realize at the moment? Something else. <laughs> or that it was nonsense to them. I mean, that happens, right? Yeah, I agree with yeah. Not that it's
2: not applicable to us, but yeah.
0: Right. It's applicable to us and it's applicable to them. And the application, I think, broadly will be the same, like in really broad principle will be the same. But in some really specific ways and important ways, it'll be different for us and for them after they see the resurrection and look backwards. Then they'll say, oh, that's what he meant. And again, we even see Luke say that sometimes and Matthew say that. Oh, he said that because he was talking about when the Holy Spirit was going to come. Well, okay, now they get that. You know, we, we see a lot of that. Um, I just want to read one more verse. We'll wrap up here. It says the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. Again, this this is a parable. I don't think we're talking about literal beatings here. But what is interesting is this fits in the theme that we talked about. What is he, what's the contrast here? He's talking about people who know the master's will and aren't waiting for the Lord versus people who don't know the master's will and aren't waiting for the Lord. And he's saying there's a greater accountability for those who know. If in fact, he's talking to the apostles about their authority, about their leadership, about their, their upcoming ministry of teaching, about their, their management of the flock. If that's what he's talking about, then what he's doing is he's saying something akin to what James says, which is that teachers are going to be held under a certain accountability. Because not only do they know things, because they should know things, if they're diligent to study the scripture, but in a sense, they're responsible for making sure other people know them. And if those other people don't know them because they were told wrong by the teacher, then they're going to be less accountable for that than the teacher is. And that might be what he's saying here. Look, you guys are the apostles. Why am I telling you these things and not the crowd? I'm telling you these things because you do know them and because you're going to be held accountable for them, and you might as well make sure that other people know it too. That's really what I'm asking you to do. Because if they don't know it and they're not waiting for me, well, I'm hardly going to hold them accountable for that. But you do know. So I think it might just be another indication that he's really talking to the apostles about their authority to come, about their management and leadership of the flock, about their overseeing of the flock and the teachings that come with that, and that they need to be always waiting for Jesus. And it's even they'll be, in a sense... Again, I have questions about what this looks like in reality, uh, but I think it's true regardless of what it looks like. That they, they, they have, they have, in a sense, a greater accountability as teachers for because they know, and they can either choose to ignore it and choose to not teach people that, or not. But the people who haven't been taught it don't have a choice. They can't choose to ignore it or not. Um, this doesn't remove personal accountability, especially today when people, you know, as John says later, we don't need teachers. In one sense, we have the Holy Spirit. We have bibles obviously john doesn't mean we don't need teachers at all or he and i both would have just shut up a long time ago but anyway that's uh i do think there's something about authority there so we'll wrap up there thank you for joining us the journey is a ministry of discipleship matters which is an extension of focus church and is created by david mcgill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches if you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by david You can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.